From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting today with my longtime collaborators, friends, and colleagues, Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. Shane Jensen, I think, is going to get in here for some of the show. He's out. He and Shane, he and Adi are at a stats conference, and Adi's managed to sneak away for a little conversation. We're going to talk um, talk pandemic in the first quarter, as we have typically been, and then we'll roll into sports for the for the next three. You know, the Vegas line that Adi would be here for the pandemic infectious disease expert was like minus five hundred, even though he said he was busy. That's right. That's right. He's committed. He's <laughs> a committed co-host. <laughs> Um, well, I, just came, I actually just came from a session that uh, Ryan Brill uh, gave on sports analytics. So maybe we'll talk about that later in our show. He had his oh, first wow. academic talk. Oh, wow. Great. Good fun. Well, Adi, do appreciate your making it. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do these days. The show will go up on Sirius XM Wednesday morning, be run a few times over the next week. And then, of course, we'll get the podcast up sometime Wednesday afternoon as well. We are going to do a little something different this week. We're going to talk about monkeypox instead of pan, instead of COVID. And um, we've been asking questions here and there over the last couple of weeks as we've as the news has emerged on monkeypox. We realize we don't know anything, and we thought this would be a good way to learn a little bit more. We're going to do a little bit more of that probably in the next few weeks. We're going to generalize this first quarter away from COVID nineteen. The pandemic doesn't seem to be going anywhere, but. It's not quite as newsy as it has been. And we have some other issues like monkeypox. So we decided to dig in this quarter. We have a guest, first time Wharton Moneyball guest, Isaac Bogosh. Isaac is a doc up in Toronto. He's an infectious diseases physician and scientist at Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. He works deeply with infectious disease, tropical medicine, HIV prevention, public health, global health. And he tells us, he saw a couple of patients in clinic today, just a couple of hours ago, with monkeypox. So he's on the front lines of this stuff. Dr. Bogosh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to chat. We're glad to have you. It sounds like you grew up in Calgary playing some hockey. We could talk, we could talk sports analytics for the next little bit. Maybe if Calgary makes a run to the cup again next year, we'll dial you in. But we're gonna we're gonna sell you out right now. Here's a Calgary guy living in Toronto who's a Bruins fan. And that just feels wrong to me, but I guess you don't have to put up with fans of all stripes. I mean, listen, if I had to pick my top three, it would be in no profile, no, Calgary number one, and then Toronto and Boston tied for two. Tough call. Love them all. Great teams. I, don't, I know we're not here to talk sports, but after the Flames won the Cup in 89, a chunk of the team was traded over to Toronto. Heroes like Doug Gilmore and that gang moved mm-hmm. over to Toronto. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as an impressionable young hockey player, it was hard not to love the Maple Leafs after watching these former Flames hoist the cup. It was just wonderful. So, yeah, there's a – and now I'm living in Toronto, and it's a great place. I used to live in Boston as well. I was there when they won the cup in 2011. That was magical. And uh, Hold on, yeah, you were in Calgary? Were you in Calgary in 89? Of course. I grew up there. Yeah, it was wonderful. All right, so maybe you're the lucky charm. to the airport when they uh, came off the plane hey, that's to greet awesome. them as a little kid. Yeah, it was wonderful. Well, maybe you're the lucky charm. You, you were in Calgary for that cup. You're in Boston for one of theirs. And maybe you'll help break this, break the run, break the drought in Toronto. Eric. 
I wanted to ask before we dive into monkeypox with Dr. Bogosh, I wanted to ask him a question. You know, they just came out in an announcement again today that Canada is requiring, I think it was in the NBA, for people to be vaccinated to enter the country for sports. And, you know, one could argue that's obviously a good thing, maybe. But the other option is why not test people, see who's actually positive for any infectious disease and let people in on that basis. So before we jump into monkeypox, I just wanted to get since that is at the intersection between infectious disease and sports. From a purely infectious disease point of view, which would make more sense or does neither make sense? Yeah, I mean, like, let's also remember, too, it's not just infectious diseases. It's the intersection between infectious clinical medicine, public health policy and politics. And you've got to sprinkle in the politics here as well. And not to delve into Canadian politics, but you're guaranteed that that's integrated into some of that policy decision. But, yeah, if we're just talking about the science here what does two doses of a vaccine do in 2022? It probably reduces your risk of severe illness, but it does very little in reducing your risk of infection and onward transmission. Are you preventing the importation of cases with that policy? No. Could you argue that maybe people who are sick with COVID are less likely to become hospitalized and suck up limited healthcare resources because they've been vaccinated? Maybe you can make that argument, but... I mean, it's a bit of a stretch at this point. So, yeah, I think I wouldn't be surprised and I don't have a crystal ball, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see um, evolution of that policy and change of that policy in the near future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let's dig into monkeypox a little bit before we do so, or maybe as a way of getting into it. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get going in infectious diseases and what is your exposure and interest and expertise around monkeypox? Yeah, I mean, uh, I trained in, uh, I grew up in Calgary, did my undergrad in Calgary, went for medical school in Toronto, did internal medicine in Toronto, and then I moved to Harvard and trained in the infection, in clinical infectious diseases and stuck around at Harvard for a master's of epidemiology. And I was always interested in tropical infectious diseases also, and, and emerging, what's known as emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. So clinically, a lot of my practice is really looking at, um, you know, immigrant and refugee populations, um, a lot of homeless populations and the infections that um, uh, many of these individuals have. And then I I do a lot of work overseas as well in, uh, in, in Africa and in South Asia as well, uh, working on infectious diseases that are local to those, those environments. And then, you know, a lot of the research and academic work is really on the epidemiology of tropical infectious diseases and emerging infectious diseases like monkeypox and Ebola and Zika and, and whatnot. So looking at human mobility and how those spread around the world. Mm-hmm. Isaac, is your when you're working overseas, is that mostly clinical or is that mostly research or a mix of both? Yeah, it's a bit of both. Uh, I, at one point, I had a Ghanaian temporary medical license and was able to see oh, wow. patients in Ghana, which was kind of fun. I actually, unfortunately, I let that slip. And now a lot of the work is with you know local clinical teams, local public health teams, local scientists, and I, I, you know, sometimes the word capacity building is used, but again, you know, supporting local, we get grants, we share grants, we, uh, you know, help support local scientists and local researchers uh, solve local problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about monkeypox. I, and I, I told you in the intro, we, we've gotten relatively deep on COVID in two and a half years of co- talking about it and reading about it. We're not at all deep on monkeypox. We, we, I think we know that, you know, if you read a New York Times article, that's about the level of depth that I have. Adi, for all I know, has been talking to experts and reading <laughs> articles, but mostly just start us out and tell us what it is and, and what's your impression of what the public's getting wrong and what the public ought to know about. 
Sure thing. Well, I mean, for starters, let's remember that this is not new. This virus has been around for a gazillion years, right? It, it has been. And, you know, it was discovered by humans in the 1950s. It's called monkeypox because it was discovered in a colony of monkeys. Uh, the first human case was identified in the 1970s. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pox virus. So we often talk about smallpox. Smallpox would be a more aggressive cousin of monkeypox. Smallpox, of course, is one of the only infections that's been eradicated from the planet because of a global coordinated vaccine effort. And because smallpox and monkeypox are closely related, that smallpox eradication campaign had tremendous knock-on positive effects for keeping monkeypox in check. Mm -hmm. So monkeypox, when it's not infecting humans, probably resides in rodents that reside in parts of Central and West Africa. Um, what's happened over the years is the smallpox vaccine campaign stopped in the 1970s or early 1980s, depending on where you are on the planet. And, you know, you have to think about a couple of factors that are happening right now. Number one, uh, we don't vaccinate for smallpox anymore. So, and the average, sorry, the median age of many of the countries where monkeypox is in endemic is about 19 to 20 years old. So the vast majority of the population has no immunity to this. Number two, you've got uh, continued environmental degradation and encroachment of humans into areas where the reservoir of this virus exists. So there's spillover from non-human to humans uh, and, and, and um, you know, more frequent and larger outbreaks in endemic countries. And then the third ingredient is you've got widespread global mobility, widespread global mobility. So people can move from part A to part B on the planet in as little as 24 hours. And we've seen this time and time again, how these viruses can emerge and spread in countries distant from where they're from. You know, I, factor, I, oh, go ahead. Pardon me. Let, let me ask about that middle piece, just so we understand the barrier there, because you, you talked about there, there, that's where the animal human barrier is, is, is translated because you said more, um, I forget what you, where'd you use encroachment encroachment in from humans into jungle and, yeah. and wil wilderness and where, where the animals live that where there's pop, where the animals host these things. And then because there's more human encroachment in the, those lands, the jump is easier in some way. Do, more contact between right? humans. Yep. More contact between humans and the animal reservoir. So again, this, again, this virus has been around for millennia uh, and it's probably in rodents, various types of rodents in central and West Africa. Um, and it's been isolated in many of them. And as you degrade environment or encroach on the environment and have contact between humans and the animal reservoir for this, you'll get humans that become infected. And then humans, once a human gets it, humans can start transmitting it to other humans. What, what forms do contact take? Direct contact. Uh, you know, it, it's a, a lot of the time is direct contact, which really, so if the question is how is monkeypox transmitted? The answer is probably multiple modes. The most efficient mode is very likely direct contact with a lesion. I mean, it causes a skin lesion. The most closely resembled skin lesion that people might recognize is the chicken pox. Totally unrelated viruses, totally unrelated viruses, but they appear, there, there are some physical similarities between how they present clinically. Um, do you have a question? Sorry. So Isaac, bear with us. We'll throw some yeah. hand signals around. Oh. We should have warned you. That's just going to be coordination between us. That's fine. Um, I'm first just trying to understand, we talked about these, these viruses jumping the human animal barrier and 
I, I, you know, when we say contact, I'm curious, do we literally mean contact with animals? Do we mean eating the animals? Do we mean feces yeah. in the tents or houses? Like what, what is it that? Yeah. So the transmission is number one, direct contact. Number two, um, you know, smallpox could transmit through the air between person to person. It doesn't appear that that's a main mode of transmission for monkeypox, but prolonged close contact with an infected individual or an infected animal may be okay. another mode of transmission because it is likely in, or it has been uh, isolated in respiratory secretions as well. So prolonged close contact and transmission through the air, but the main mode of transmission seems to be direct contact, like touching. Uh, okay. an infected individual, especially an infected lesion. And I think the third thing, let's just keep an open mind here, is sexual transmission. So during this outbreak, there has been the isolation of the of DNA, of monkeypox DNA in semen. And, uh, you know, it, and it's viable virus, like you can grow the virus. It's not just like fragments and shreds of genetic material, like it, the virus was actually grown, which means it's there in a substantial amount. And it's likely, I'm using them carefully using these words, it's likely that it's also sexually transmitted as well. And people might not remember this, but, you know, um, during the Zika virus epidemic in 2014, it was found that Zika could be transmitted sexually. That was a sort of a surprise. And then during the Ebola virus at West Africa uh, epidemic, it was found that Ebola could be transmitted through the semen as well. So this wouldn't be the first time that a virus that previously wasn't thought to be transmitted through sexual contact through the semen is is, has been discovered that way. More that we need to learn on that aspect, but I wouldn't leave it out of conversations. So real quickly on that, we hear the, the what we hear about is is homosexual sexual contact. Sounds like male-male generally, but if it's transmitted transmitted through semen, why is it not transmitted through heterosexual sex as well? It, well, again, more that we need to learn on this. And I think we have to step back and look at the epidemiology of monkeypox infections outside of Central and West Africa. And, and, it, and when you look at, for example, I'm in Canada uh, and I'm in the province of Ontario, 99.4% of all of our cases of monkeypox are in men. 99.4%. We're at about 500 cases right now. Okay. It is, it, I'm saying this with no stigma, no discrimination, no moralization whatsoever, but this is almost exclusively, almost exclusively in the men who have sex with men community at this point in time. And again, you have to be honest and you also have to be respectful. Good rules for science, good rules for public health and good rules for life. Mm -hmm. Who is this impacting? Currently in Canada and many other parts of the world, it's disproportionately impacting the men who have sex with men community. And we can do say that in a respectful, honest, non-moralizing manner because you have to mount a public health response. And if you pretend that there's you know, in August of 2022, things can change. But if we're timestamping this conversation to August of 2022, and you want to mount an effective public health campaign, you're going to focus this campaign on the men who have sex with men community, not mm-hmm. on members of the general public who at this point in time in you know, Canada and the United States, the risk is negligible at this point mm-hmm. in time. Again, mm-hmm. things can change. It's a communicable infection. Anybody can get this infection if they're exposed. But mm-hmm. currently, it is disproportionately impacting the men who have sex with men community. And that's where the public health response should be focused. And that's where it is focused in most places, appropriately mm-hmm. so. What, how, is that, how is that going so far? And was that community, is, are they scarred from HIV? Or are they more ready from HIV to respond to that kind of campaign? Okay, that's a, oh, thanks for asking. That's a great, a really good point. So, you know, any 
public health campaign that's worth in, it, worth its weight uh, is actively involves the community that's affected. And, you know, it's not like it's one unified public health campaign. You know, you, you could, you know, New York might be different than Boston, might be different than Toronto, might be different than Montreal. Toronto, where I am sitting, I'm not patting anyone on the back, but they really were very quick in getting the men who have sex with men community on board into the communication, into the rollout of the public health campaign, putting vaccine clinics into communities and neighborhoods and community centers where the men who have sex with men community feels comfortable and is in, in various neighborhoods and building trust with the community and, and really having community leadership help lead the public health response. That's public health 101. And that's uh, a surefire way to have a more successful response. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see early signs of success in a place like Toronto and in a place like Montreal, where there was an honest, respectful uh, and inclusive public health response that was very targeted, very tailored and, and rather coordinated. Mm -hmm. I can't say the same for other parts of the world. Also, listen, you're in the United States. I'm in Canada. We're fortunate to be living in resource extravagant settings. We have access mm -hmm. to the vaccine. You know, we yeah. do, whereas other parts of the world don't. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we screw up, it's our own fault. Whereas so, if they uh, screw up, they haven't been given the tools for success. Just before I know Adi wants to jump in, but just one quick follow up. What's the vaccine effectiveness? Just because we've been Unknown. talking for so long uh, in on this show yeah. about the COVID vaccine and boosters and everything else. Is it a single shot? Uh, just what is the form of the vaccine and how effective is it or what do we know? So this is really interesting. And uh, like anything else in science and medicine and stats, it's like it's a bit of a nuanced response. For starters, one of the questions that people should be asking is, why do we have a monkeypox vaccine in the first place? And the answer is, we don't have a monkeypox vaccine. We have a smallpox vaccine. And the next question is, why do we have a smallpox vaccine? When there's no smallpox on the planet, it has been eradicated from the planet. And the answer to that is, in case there's a terrible bioterrorism event, we will have the means to protect ourselves. That's the only reason why we have smallpox vaccines. And you'll actually hear, oh, sorry, you won't hear many federal governments disclose the exact amount of vaccine that they have because it's a health security issue and a health security threat. Mm -hmm. So you often hear the states ask the feds, say, well, could we have some of the stockpile? And they'll say, sure. Uh, and then the feds, then the states will say, well, how much can we have? And the feds will say, well, well how much do you need? Like, it's a bit of a coy game here. Uh, but, you know, different countries have different amounts of this. Um, but yeah, this is a smallpox vaccine that is cross protective against monkeypox. There's 2003 data, fascinating story where, believe it or not, guinea pigs were infected with monkeypox. They were imported into the United States. They were infected from other animals that probably came from Africa. There was an outbreak of this vaccine. People who had prior smallpox vaccination, this was in 2003, had pretty reasonable protection against monkeypox. And, you know, they're estimating vaccine efficacy of about 85%-ish, but that was 2003. That's almost 20 years ago. We're using a different vaccine now. It's a two-dose vaccine. It's not entirely clear what the clinical, what the effectiveness or efficacy of this vaccine is. We're only giving a single dose of this vaccine rather than the two doses. Early indications appear that it probably works. And if you have a breakthrough infection, you'll probably have milder, a milder course of illness. And I'm really hedging my words because we don't have definitive data on this just yet. And what's really interesting too, if we want to get nerdy, is because there's a global shortage of this vaccine, what they're going to do in the United States, they just announced it yesterday or today, is they're going to take a vial 
and they're going to cut that vial into five. So rather than give you one intramuscular injection right into the muscle, they're going to give you five injections underneath the skin, uh, not an individual. You can break down so you can get five injections under the skin instead of uh, one injection under the arm. I didn't explain that well at all. <laughs> instead of wasting, instead of spending, injecting one person, you can actually immunize five people by using a smaller dose and, uh, and giving the vaccine under the skin. And they've done this before with um, rabies vaccines. And it seems to work well because you're, the way your immune cells are sitting, it's, it theoretically is just as effective, but we'll see. Well, if, it's, if it's just as effective, why ever do it the other way? I don't understand how you can just decide to give it another place, one fifth the dose in, in a yeah. different location and be okay. Oh, you watch this. This is your, your, you have a crystal ball here and you're going to start to see a trend of, vaccines underneath the skin rather than intramuscular vaccines, because there's excellent data to demonstrate that you can give a smaller dose. It's cost effective because you're using a fifth or a fraction of the vaccine that you normally use. And you actually get as much or more bang for your buck because that's where the right immune cells are sitting that you want to target. So you watch this space closely. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future, you're going to start to see more uh, vaccines given under the skin than in the muscle. Super interesting. We've been holding off our true epidemic expert for a few minutes here. I'm going to hold off for one more second to say, I love this phrase you used, resource extravagant countries, America and Canada, <laughs> resource extravagant. It takes, I think, the perspective of someone who does work in, you know, Africa and, and some, and some, and some non-resource extravagant countries to understand exactly how resource extravagant we are. Adi, what do you got? Yeah, well, yeah, you, Isaac, you've actually answered a bunch of my questions along the way uh, through through your conversation. Uh, but I have two questions. One, uh, I guess I'll start with the the uh, the obvious one. For we old guys, were vaccinated for for smallpox um, when we were kids because it died out in the seventies in the United States. Um, so I'm I'm presuming that I was born since I was born in '67 that I I was vaccinated for smallpox and and probably Eric and, and Kate as well. Do are we protected? And that's my first question. I, I think the answer is yes, um, but I'd like to hear your answer. And the second and my second question, which is why now? I mean, monkeypox have been around a long time. What's what's now and what's different and about about the many um, infestations of, of these poxes that have occurred before? So, okay, so yeah. yeah, so. Are you protected if you had a monkey po- a smallpox vaccine in the 1970s? And the answer is you probably have some degree of protection. And if you lined up 100 people who were vaccinated in the 70s and exposed them all to uh, monkeypox virus, yeah, some people probably wouldn't get the infection. And those that had breakthrough infections would probably have less severe infection compared to those who perhaps were not vaccinated. I'm basing this on 2003 data. Um, Do you and, see this in your in your in, the, in, in your in your in your hustle rounds? You're seeing old guys, yeah. with monkeypox or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's a really neat case uh, series out of Spain that was published the other day that showed a bunch of people who had prior monkeypox vaccinations had breakthrough infections and they had their, sorry, smallpox vaccinations in the right. 70s had breakthrough infections. So it certainly can happen and it does happen. And in fact, when we're looking at eligibility for who's eligible for a monkeypox vaccine, a remote smallpox vaccine does not exclude you. Just because you were vaccinated in the 1970s, if you're at risk, you come out and get your monkeypox vaccine. So mm-hmm. yes, you certainly can get it. There's good data demonstrating that you can get it. But there's probably decent data demonstrating that it still lowers your risk of getting it. I can't quantify by how much right now. And if you do have a breakthrough infection, you'll probably, keyword, probably have a milder course of illness compared to if you did not have that remote smallpox vaccine. So that's part one. Part two is why this, why now? 
And uh, there's those three key ingredients of increasing size and frequency of monkeypox outbreaks in endemic countries in Central and West Africa because of waning community level protection because those vaccine programs stopped in the late 70s and 80s. Encroaching, uh, so more, so we've got, and then human mobility and, and people uh, bringing monkeypox to different parts of the world through global travel. Listen, this is not the first time monkeypox has been exported from Central and West Africa. There was a yeah. case in Israel, there was a case in UAE, there's a, been a couple of cases in the UK, like it's happened over the last little while. And in fact, some of us in the business, not myself, but some of us who work very closely in this area have said, like, you got to watch this, like, this is going to be a big problem. Uh, moving forward. So there were people warning us of this in 2016, 17, 18, 19. But the key thing here, and again, love, respect, no moralization, no discrimination whatsoever, but it got into a population of men who have sex with men. And it's been amplified in that population uh, because there's you know, multiple people are having close contact, sexual contact, direct contact with a lot of other people, with multiple partners. So it's a perfect storm to amplify a virus that's transmitted through direct contact uh, and possibly through sexual contact. Uh, and and you, you can see this amplified. The other important point too that we should recognize is timing, okay? It is now, uh, what is it? Early August, 2022. These cases were exported and were started to, to be detected around you know May right? Or we were hearing about this in May, but what's June? Well, June is pride month in many places. Okay. So there were big, uh, uh, pride events and pride gatherings and parties and, you know, people had, and again, love and respect to everyone. There's no moralization in any of the comments I'm about to make, but yeah, this is a very significant time where there's, uh, you know, large gatherings of men who have sex with men, there's lots of sexual, a lot of sexual contacts and the potential to massively amplify this virus. And then people go back to where they live and bring the virus with them. So that's, that definitely contributed to the amplification of this virus as well. And I know mm -hmm. it sounds like a broken record, but it is so important. Like we can have honest and respectful conversations. Like, I mean, I work very closely with the men who have sex with men community and, and some of my clinics and like, again, no stigma, just honest conversation. Cause if you don't have the honest conversation, you can't have a meaningful public health response. Isaac, that's great. And thank you for modeling that for us. We all need models of how to talk about these things for sure. So appreciate that. Tell us about the course of the disease you're talking about. If you've had prior exposure to a smallpox vaccination, or even if you had the monkeypox vaccination, but we're still seeing breakthroughs a lesser course. What's the typical course? What do we know? How, how standard is it? And how much risk is there for serious conditions? Yeah. And luckily most people like this can be uncomfortable. Let's put it that way. This could be very uncomfortable. The lesions can be painful. Um, we're seeing a lot of lesions in, uh, you know, on the genitalia in the anus uh, and it hurts uh, and it can be pretty uncomfortable. A lot of people have a very mild course of illness. They might only have a few little dots on, on their body and, and they recover. And that's great. Um, sometimes we have to admit people to hospital for pain related issues uh, because it, it hurts and they need some additional pain control that they're just not getting appropriate pain control at home. You know, rarely, but it does happen. Some people have more severe illness. We've heard of inflammation of the heart as a result of uh, this virus. We've heard of, um, you know, terrible swollen lymph nodes that are, you know, very, uh, intrusive and cause significant morbidity. Um, people can die. It's extremely rare, but there's a, you know, 
part of this outbreak, you can count the number of deaths on probably one hand, maybe close to two hands. And there's among uh, just around 30,000 reported cases. We're completely undercounting the cases, by the way. Those are reported cases. That's obviously the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you can get complications that result in death. Fortunately, it's very rare. Mm -hmm. For those who don't get more serious complications, how long until they're healed and back into normal and not having pain? Yeah, this is a... It's interesting because there's a spectrum, but uh, it usually takes uh, a couple of weeks. And sometimes the lesions pop up over different times and it's been taking people a little bit longer. And this is really interesting because we can talk about the stats. We can talk about the clinical medicine, but we also can't ignore the social medicine aspect of it. So imagine you've got someone who's got these skin lesions. Maybe they're, they have a mild course of illness. They don't need to come into hospital for anything. You say, okay, go isolate at home. You can't go out. You've got to go isolate at home. Well, it can take two or three weeks before these lesions heal up and the person is no longer contagious to anybody else. What about paying your rent? What about putting food on the table? What about, you know, important things? Do you think anyone's going to want to come out and say, hey, I might have monkeypox. Can can you give me a swab over here so I can, you know, get screwed over by getting locked in my house for three weeks and then getting evicted because I couldn't pay rent. So this is so important that we integrate the clinical medicine with the social aspect. You got to provide people the resources to isolate at home. If you want to get this under control, mm-hmm. give people tools for success. And you, mm-hmm. it's not, as we say, it's not diagnose and adios. It's diagnose <laughs> and really care for, for individuals and, and ensure they've got the, they can isolate at home and, and recover so that they don't infect other people. So, so let me ask you specific questions on, on, on uh, the monkeypox. One is you, you touched on it earlier as an infectivity. Um, it sounds like it's it's clearly not as infectious as smallpox, which was more aerosol transmission and, and pretty easy to get. But so, how would you put? So, if you if, if you would put, uh, you know, where where on the slider would you put it on this infectiousness? And and as a parallel question, um, morbidity, mortality for monkeypox. If you put say chickenpox on one end of a slider and smallpox on the other, um, where would monkeypox fall? Smallpox kills about thirty to fifty percent. You know, dies uh, of and then even if you survive it, you have lifelong complications. Chickenpox, basically everyone recovers and it's no big deal. So where would you put monkeypox? It sounds like it's, it's much closer to the chickenpox side of thing than the, than the smallpox side. But I'll let yeah. you take the stance. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. It is much closer yeah. to the chickenpox side. If you look at the data from Africa, from West, there's two types of monkeypox. I'm oversimplifying. There's a West African and a Central African type. If you look at the studies from over the years that were coming out of West Africa and Central Africa, the mortality rates from West Africa were about three-ish percent. That's really high, by the way. And the mortality rates in Central Africa were as high, there's a range, but as high as 10%. That's also extremely high. Is that the real morbidity and mortality? Is that the real mortality rate? Probably not, because you're probably only recognizing in those countries the sickest of the sick that present to medical care, and you're missing the very mild infections that just don't have access to medical care because of all the barriers to care and, and, and the lack of care that's a, and healthcare that's available in many of those countries. So those are probably overestimates. Having said that, it's almost certainly to be more morbid than chickenpox, and of course, less morbid, significantly less morbid than smallpox. But yeah, people, people can die. It's just, it's just not a common issue. And I think when you look at what are, who are the risk factors for severe illness, Apparently, kids get more severe illness. Thank God we haven't seen a lot of infections in kids. Pregnant mm-hmm. women get more severe illness. Thank God mm-hmm. we haven't seen a lot of infections in them. Obviously, the immunocompromised population, so people with HIV or other conditions that 
uh, compromise the immune system and perhaps the elderly as well. We just, again, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of unknowns and we're going to learn a lot more along the way. Isaac, how do you think the world's responding to this differently as a result of their experience with COVID? It's shit. It's terrible. It's absolutely awful. We're like, it's almost like we've learned nothing. And it's really disappointing, right? So, you know, like I said, you're in US, I'm in Canada, we've got access to vaccines. You know how many vaccines, the new vaccine they have in Africa? Zero. Zero. Okay. Like, give me a break. It's absolutely appalling. Uh, you know, did we learn anything from come out of the gates flying, overreach, and then recalibrate along the way during an emerging infection? Nope. Most places didn't do that. Did we start to really acknowledge in a respectful, non-discriminatory manner that this right. is impacting the men who have sex with men community? Most places didn't do that. And they're trying to, you know, we heard the communication. People would even, they, they almost felt intimidated to say the word men who have sex with men because for whatever reason, many parts of the world still have tremendous stigma or criminalize men who have sex with men. And it's illegal in many parts of the world. So like, how are you going to, how are you going to get this under control if you, you know, like, like we got, I think this is going to be a huge problem. Here's what's, I don't have a crystal ball, but here's what's likely going to happen. Places that came out of the gates flying that have access to the vaccine and that, you know, have experience with, you know, sound public health responses are going to clearly do better. But other places, I mean, with, that are disorganized, that are slow, that discriminate against the MSM, men and of sex with men community, uh, I think you're going to see this grumble along for a long, long, long time. And you're going to see, we'll be talking about this, sadly, for years. If mm -hmm. I was in the United States, in Canada, the goal is elimination. Get mm -hmm. this out of here. Eliminate the virus. It's not too late. You can eliminate it and then deal with imported cases as they come in from either the endemic countries or mm -hmm. newly endemic countries that haven't got this under control. But we should still aim for elimination where we are. The other thing, of course, is, you got to, we can only act locally because that's where we live and work, but you got to treat this as a global issue. If you treat this as a regional issue, mm -hmm. you've lost. And part of treating this as a global issue is vaccine equity and ensuring everywhere in the world has access to these vaccines because you're going to be importing it from all over the place if they can't get it under control. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's ethically the right thing to do, but it also has positive knock-on effects because you'll import fewer cases to your country. Right, right, right. All right. Well, listen, man, this has been hugely helpful and um, and very interesting as well. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. And we're pulling for you as you're fighting the battles that you're fighting there in Toronto. We wish you the best with it. My pleasure. Thanks for chatting. Have a, have a great day, guys. Absolutely. That's Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Bogosh is B-O-G-O-C-H. Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's a great follow on Twitter. His handle up there is at Bogosh Isaac at Bogosh Isaac, again, B-O-G-O-C-H. He is an infectious disease expert out of Toronto. That has been our first quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM rolling into Q2 open topics quarter. Q2 and Q3 both will be open topics. We just came out of an interview 
on Monkeypox, our first interview on Monkeypox in Q1. And we're going to end the show with a sports interview, as we usually do in Q4. We have Ted Knutson of, of StatsBomb, uh, sports analytics, soccer, now American football. Fun conversation there at the end. In between, wherever you guys want to go. This is Cade Massey. We've got Eric Bradlow in here. Shane Jensen just logged on. He's at a conference. Where are you guys again? Audie Weiner's in from the conference. You guys are in the same hotel, same background. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're taking uh, the big annual uh, joint statistical meetings in uh, Washington, D.C. This year. D.C.? Okay, yeah. very good. Well, thanks for making the time, guys. Let's talk sports. Got a short Q2 and a short Q3 to talk sports. Um, wide open. You guys can jump in on anything. What what has caught your eye? I think of this. I, th- I was thinking the last couple of days, this is kind of like, you know, in American football, the whole team takes off like June. They get like a month off and they all do their big trips and then they come back and they work their asses off for the other 11 months. And so this that's like their one stretch. I kind of feel like as a sports viewer, August is a little bit our month off. You got to go get a break, get some time away from the telly, ignore the the blogs for a little while because football's about to start and then it's just a, a race and we and we find something fascinating pretty much every season of the year but i think it's a little slow right now so pga championship went away is august not a little slow other than kind of the the sounds of shoulder pads hitting on the training camp fields that are also alluring other Where than that? I, I mean i think well, in not- terms of well but in terms of signal to noise this is definitely the slowest part of the football season because you know i think yeah, it's all you crap. know, there's a lot of like the news is cycling up for football. All the reporters are back and having to fill articles up That's with right. information. Right. But I feel like the actual amount of real information that is currently being reported is is very low. That's right. And so it's we ought to be filtering and not paying much attention. The guys, I'm getting protests from the hardcore baseball guys. You're like, are you kidding me? We're, I'm not kidding you. August is boring. Come on, September. We can worry about the pennant races. We just came through the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, is little, well, this is a slow, this is a slow month. I will say for my, my, I don't know, seventh and eighth favorite sports, this is a very good time of year. Uh, tennis <laughs> is the U.S. Open in, uh, in August, starts in August. And also in golf, the, you know, the FedEx championship starts this week and it will be yeah, completed no, this month. No, you're making my point for me. Thank you very no, much. No, I'm just, I said my sixth and seventh favorite sports. <laughs> well, I said seventh and eighth, by the way. But I, if I don't this know were that football season. Yeah, no, I mean, or I, basketball I, reaction, season, I, I, I wouldn't pay as much attention to them. Maybe we don't have to hash out your full power rankings, <laughs> but given how knowledgeable, enthusiastic you are about both tennis and golf, to hear that they're only your sixth and seventh <laughs> favorite sports, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. That's because, I mean, hot dog eating contest is up there somewhere. Number food, one, food eating, food eating contests yeah. are up there somewhere. Um, all right, guys, more seriously, what what has what has caught your eye in the world of sports? Let's go. Let's do a round real quick. we got a short term, short quarter here. What's caught your eye in the world of sports? I'll get to go. I have only one thing. I'll start. I'm just uh, recalibrating my posterior prediction interval for Aaron Judge's home run total yeah. for the season. Let's talk about it. So he just hit 44 last night. He hit right? 44. I think at this point, I think half the probability is above 60. And I think that would be a reasonable um, estimate. I think so hold on, update me. We were, I think, 42 last week. Is that, am I having that right? Was I wasn't on the show last week, but two yes. weeks ago when I was here, yeah. I was predicting He's hit two in the last week. Okay. Is two in a week good? That doesn't sound very good. That's about right. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Cade, um, to hit 60 or 64, which is what he's on pace on, he's literally hit 44 home runs. He hasn't played 110 games, but the Yankees have. You have to hit 0.4 per game 
So one every two and a half games. So you play about five or six games in a week. So two okay. a week is going to yeah. get you to 60 to 64. Man, my memory of, I was in Chicago in grad school for the Sosa McGuire year or two. And my memory is just, they were just, they were plinking, plinking them out of there. Like, you know, every game they were at the end of the season. It was just riveting. I'm sure I'm wrong. But it's it well, just I, and, and I think a lot of I mean, one of the things amazing about Aaron Judge is not just that he's hit so many is that I think it's relatively consistent. His rate has not actually varied, I don't think. very. Yeah, I mean, obviously, had, he's had some big uh, weeks, but he's been very consistent about hitting home runs compared to somebody like Kyle Schwarber, who like a couple times, you know, like once a season will hit like, you know, 11 home runs in 10 <laughs> games or something like that. And then like hit okay. no home runs for an entire month. He's similar to that, too. He I just want to point out one thing about Aaron Judge. That, uh, I mean, I know Adi and I have talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So there's 44 games left till 154. Now, oh, if he has oh, 0.4 oh. home runs per game till 154. That's so 154, that's, that's significant. That's less than 162, which is they're going to play. I, but I understand, you're saying, but it used Babe to be Ruth, 154. Babe yeah. Ruth so, was the 154 Correct. So 0.4 times 44 would be 17.6. He'd get to 62 home runs in 154. Now that would break Roger Maris's record. Now remember, Roger Maris hit that in 162. Yeah, he he didn't have four. Right. If he gets to 60, if he gets to 62 home runs in 154 games, as far as I'm concerned, that is the record outside of the PED era. It's the record. It's the record because the PED era is when Sosa, McGuire, and Bonds exceeded 61. What's the uh, what's the outside of the PED uh, post-integration uh, record? Well, you keep bringing that up like that's something in the record book. Well, <laughs> well I mean, Rod- it's not. But neither no, it's is, fair. Uh, again, that's like, fair. I'm, Roger I'm, Maris. I'm just saying like Roger you know, Maris. Once, hit... once you want to start adding asterisks, no, no, no. You're fair. Absolutely, records. Shane. I agree with you. Sh- uh, Roger Maris hit 61 in 61, so that would have been the post uh, okay. integration era. Obviously, Jackie Robinson 47. So you know, 61 is the post integration record, and he did it in 162 games. Okay, so and so you dispute we... every other breaking of that record, which has been broken multiple times since then. I, I didn't say that. I said all the people, the only people that have broken that record are people that are known people to have used performance enhancing drugs, including in the seasons in which they actually broke the record. Because there's only three people to have hit more than 61. That's Sosa, McGuire, and Bonds. That's yeah. it. Okay, That's so it. so I'm going to suggest that until we get closer, let's not have asterisk conversations so much. By the way, the uh, asterisk, I think, by the way, is only a philosophical idea. It's not exactly. It, I know it's, a, but but I mean, we're speculating on potentials. So let's let's. I'd rather project here for a second. When you go to project, Adi said you think 50 percent of the probability lies above 60. That's for the 100 for full 162 games, I assume. Um, but whichever you want to do, 162 or 154, whichever way you want to go. What are you regressing his rate to? Just let's have that conversation real quick. We had it before, but just like casually. It's what interesting reg- what, 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 you know, so the traditional way to regress is just to regress. Look at all the players in, instead of trying to go back to Aaron Judge's mean. I'm not sure how to do that, but simply like regress to what most people regress. Uh, look at look at the portion of the season, say two third, one, one third. Find those correlation and use that as your as your literally your R is correlation is regression stands for regression and do it so, that way. 
Adi, yeah. real quickly, um, you're saying all hitters look at two thirds yep. of the season and ask how yep. well that predicts the last third of the, the season. last third. So some okay, of that you're asking gonna... the right question because one of the th- the question we always ask in hierarchical models and shrinkage is shrinking towards what population. So I right. think you're vast. In my view, the most important question is it's not obvious even the correlation between two thirds and one third, which is what Adi's talking about, would hold uniformly across all hitters. And so I agree with you. That is no. I mean, it obviously doesn't hold across all hitters. I mean, for example, if you include pitchers in there, they have a correlation, you know, essentially of one. They don't ever hit. (laughs) Well, you do want. That's a good point. So one of the things you definitely try to do is you try to get rid of the the people who just don't hit home runs at all. They Mm -hmm. will distort. Um, So there's obviously more than one way to to. But I think it's interesting. But um, one other thing to do is you recognize that there's the base rate of hitting sixty is so low. The only people who have ever done it. Um, are Ruth, Maris, Mantle, Sosa, Bonds, McGuire. That's it. No Mantle, not Mantle, not Mantle. Not Mantle, sorry, not Mantle. And then you just basically have to use that base prior probability. It's just so low that you want to move that down so that it hitting 60 in whatever forecast you're using, whatever method, people are starting to forecast 60, reasonable people, not just journalists who are in, just expecting. In 154 or 162? Uh, in 162. 162. 162. Okay. I don't see anyone's broken down by 150. I mean, we could do it, but I haven't done it. Um, okay. By the way, this is and this is a very interesting statistical number. Like, how do you actually go approach that? And I'm going to go backwards. You know, I don't know. I don't hate to talk about this, but the Yankees are on a big, major kind of losing streak. They're maybe. maybe no, let's even, talk about it. Let's spend some time on it. All right. <laughs> well, they're maybe enjoy. the all-star break, maybe even lower than 500. And what's remarkable about this is we were speculating, like, what should we forecast the Yankees the rest of the season after they started off like 7-10 seven, seven, through, through half the season? And Fangraphs was saying 570, 570. And they were calling them the fifth best team in the, in the majors based on everything that they knew. And y'all were hating it. Y'all were screaming protests. We screaming at it. And I'm, I'm shaking my head and going, what happened since then? They traded one of their best pitchers, Montgomery, the starters, for a, an injured center fielder. I can't wait till Harrison Bader gets play for us, but he's not playing now. Um, a lot of their pitchers, you know, Severino's on the, you know, on the DL, stands on the DL or the IL, whatever they call it these days. The bottom line is, is that injury is a major issue. And Carpenter's yeah, now probably out Carpenter's for the season. Injured. They are a 570 team right now. Well, look, injury is always the number one reason you should regress extreme yep. performance. I mean, if, whether it's individual player or the, or the team level, it's like the risk of injury is pervasive. And probably that's the one kind of thing that, a lot of these like that should kind of weigh into the judge regression, you know, uh, substantially, because, you know, I mean, again, you know, you know, most of I think when we think about regression, his performance, it's like, well, assuming he is still Aaron Judge, but just kind of comes away from this particularly like high rate. What should we kind of regress to? You have to kind of throw in some kind of like, you know, injury probability into that kind of calculation as well. Yeah, I, I would think most people's let's call it 95 percent confidence interval for his home runs right now. I'm just making this up, but I'm just my opinion. I'd say it's between, and you guys tell me if you think it's too narrow. I'd say it's between 55 and 65. Well, I, I honestly, that yeah, implies two, that his injury probability, like his right, season ending right, injury probability right. is less than 5%. Which it's not. <laughs> right? Well, then you can't. I mean, if it's right, greater then than you 5%, can, then it has to include 44. It has to go well, this down reminds me. To where he's currently at. This reminds me of how NBA projections are done these days. NBA projections, you need to know, you have to be modeling utilization all the time. The the bettors who are betting props on individual players in the NBA 
a fundamental piece of their models are utilization. Is the guy going to play? How many minutes? Yeah. Are you, gonna, you need that here. I mean, you do. The, by the way, the, the fantasy sports bettors do the same thing. They, they bet our players. They bet on how much use you're going to get. Yeah. Well, he's remarkably played 106 of the 110 Yankee games this year. Yeah, no. And I mean, he's I, honestly, I, I mean, I'm not a fan of, I, I, I find it very hard to cheer for any Yankees, but I, I don't want an injury to happen to him. But I think, you know, I would unfortunately peg, uh, you know, kind of a season ending injury. I mean, we see him popping up all over the place at greater than 5%. So it's oh, absolutely. like, you know, unfortunately, I think, you know, if we really were doing a 95% predictive interval, it almost has to span from where he's currently at yeah. up until like, you know, 65 or wherever you want to upper bound that. Yeah. So a, a different projection question. I see that Eric has this observation in here. It says 17 players, only 17 players with a batting average at 300 or higher. And he says likely lower at the end of the season. So this is a projection of sorts. You're saying batting above 300 is above average, above expectation. And so you should expect regression. Yes. This, okay. It's yeah, two standard deviations above average. Two standard deviations. Yep. Wow. It didn't okay. used to be, but it is now. And, and just to let you know, I think there's five or six of those players are within 302 to 300. Yeah. So, right, you know, right. in some sense, you could easily imagine a scenario where there's less than 10 players over 300 by the end of the season. So, but some, the, what about the protest? Well, won't some people kind of outperform? And so won't they They're bubble up from the 290s? Will be bubbled up? They will, the but they'll be, but those, those but people many. aren't regressing to the mean. They're doing the opposite. They're so going the opposite expect, direction. You expect fewer of them than the others. You would you expect, but t- not zero. Not, not, not at all zero. I just was struck. I, I told you guys, I'm always interested in the distribution of the maximum. So I've looked at the max. Uh, so I've looked at the maximum batting average every year, and I think I told you, um, Soto, who Shane pointed out uh, just a couple of weeks, Juan Soto, he's one of only two players. Him and Cabrera, I think, in the last ten years, the only two players to end up over three fifty mm-hmm. for the entire season. Like it's not mm-hmm. happened over the last ten years. Yeah. And so again, I think we better get used to three twenty, three thirty being the leading batting average in the league. That's what it's been. Eight of the, of the 20 batting average leaders, ALNL, like 18 of the last 20 have been in that range. That's what it and is. I, I mean, obviously we kind of know some of the mechanisms behind that has OBP like draw, like, is that, I mean, I assume that that is also kind of like the max yes, OBP, the distribution uh, around yes. the max has decreased over time, yep. but probably not as dramatically. That's correct. Batting average. Just to give you an example. I looked at it today, Shane. I think there's 11 yeah. players over 400. Soto, by the way, is an example who has a 249 batting average, has an OBP of 402. Yeah. 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 So Trout's got to be kind of in there. So, I mean, Trout's like probably got a higher batting average, but he's still, that's, Trout's yeah, injured. I mean, you know, is, isn't the biggest factor in the distribution of the max the standard deviation? So, is, isn't the observation like the disappearing of the 400 hitter, isn't that fundamentally because the standard deviation in batting averages has declined steadily since Ted Williams? No, no, no. That, I mean, I think you're referring to this inter- very interesting uh, discussion by Stephen Jay Gould. He yes. argued that the gap in, stand, in in individual gap between the average player and the elite has is, is, is collapsed. That back in Ted Williams' day, he was five standard deviations better than the average, whatever unit you're measuring on. And now the best players are two standard deviations better than the average. But since pitchers and, and batters get better equally with each other, the average, the batting average hovers around 250, 260, stays where it is. So 400 used to be, uh, plausible because Ted Williams was five standard deviations better hitter than the average hitter. But now that's two standard deviations and three, 320, 330, 340 is all we're getting. 
So why, why is it that the separation has declined so much? Is it because of participation? Training. Is that one mechanism? Training, training, I would have to say. Okay. Um, okay. Interesting. All right. Is there anybody that we should be watching on any of these, any other statistics? Last, last chance at the very Just end. Just the last quickly. Um, is Justin Verlander to get to 300 wins? I thought nobody would ever get there again. Maybe he won't, but he's 39. If he's the next Nolan Ryan, he can win 59 more games in six years. Speaking of Nolan Ryan, okay, good, great. Let's let's follow that. There's a new documentary out on face. I think it's called Facing Ryan. It's supposed to be a great documentary about Nolan Ryan. Somebody needs to watch that report back. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. There's still two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics rolling into the third quarter. You guys can join the conversation in a way we wish that you would. You can follow us on Twitter, hit us up on Twitter, yell at us on Twitter. At W Moneyball is our handle up there, at W Moneyball. Our DMs are open also. Producer, boss man, Matty Dats, wants you to know DMs are open at, at W Moneyball. You can also reach out by email. We have a mailbox, a mailbag of sorts. Our, our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send, and we love to hear from you. Good, bad, short, long, we love to hear from you. And we get as much of it as possible on the air. Guys, uh, we haven't talked football yet. We're going to talk a little bit in the fourth quarter about football with uh, Ted Knutson of Statsbomb. But it is training camp. Even the colleges are off and running in training camp. We've got football there. I think they played a game last weekend. I know the Ravens are going to play Thursday, so we're off and running into preseason. Um, a quote jumped out to me from the coach down here at the University of Texas talking about Xavier Worthy. Xavier Worthy's breakout freshman receiver last year, going to be a great receiver this year as long as he stays healthy. And the coach Sarkeesian says, he says, we run catapult data on all our players from practice and, and Worthy's at the top on all the dimensions. He's on the top for distance run, top speed, acceleration, change of direction. He names like five different dimensions that catapult's capturing. And, and it just jumps out to me as super interesting. And we mostly don't know what teams are doing with these data. We know that they're, almost everybody's capturing it. And then how are they using it? I gave an NFL team a ring after I got that quote and said, hey, just fill me in on how you guys are using catapult data. And what I learned was that mostly NFL teams are using that around load management. It's not so much around motivation or competition. He said that some players are like, they, they kind of brag about their, or they're interested in what their top speeds were. Mm -hmm. You can imagine that's like a uh, little bragging rights in the caf cafeteria. But um, mostly in the NFL, it's about load management. They're counting reps that get, these guys are doing. They're, no, they're deciding when to lay guys off for a day. And in college, it's a little more oriented towards competition and getting people motivated. Anyway, the data are just so rich. I'm sure that some teams are doing tons of things with these data. And some yeah, I, I would kind not. of expect it's almost like, you know, like I, I would guess a, a teams, depending on the particular player, probably have, you know, uh, almost like I can imagine like a buy kind of bimodal sort of strategy where it's like, you know, I mean, something like Aaron Donald it's probably got mostly about like load management or something like that. Cause you know, Aaron Donald's your starting like player for the team. He's well entrenched. He's clearly, you know, important piece of your team. 
But of course, training camp is also not just about kind of keeping, you know, getting, getting your mainstays, your starters in shape and like making sure they stay healthy, but also identifying all these kind of players that are more on the margins. And I would guess that, you know, some of these other kind of non-load management aspects of like catapult-based analyses would be more for these kind of, you know, the, the kind of players on the margins of making the team. Yeah, that's interesting. Like you, you can imagine that every now and then you somebody pops that you weren't noticing, or maybe someone's not getting as many yeah. reps on the field. And so they don't have any chances to pop, but you see this one number come out and you're like, Oh goodness, look at that. We've talked to the people at catapult. We probably ought to have them on again and find out some interesting use cases, but they're data rich, rich data out there. Speaking of the Ravens with their game on Thursday, they just re-upped with Justin Tucker. Did y'all see this? He's got two years left on his contract. And a random conversation he's having with Harbaugh apparently leads to a four-year extension at something like $24 million, so maybe $6 million a year. They guaranteed something like 17 and a half of it. It's a nice contract for what many people believe is the best kicker in the history of the NFL. How do we judge the value of a kicker? I mean, how do we know? How do the Ravens know how much they should pay Tucker? So I once remember seeing an analysis where imagine a curve where on the x-axis you have the distance of the field goal on the y-axis you have the probability of making and i remember seeing it for a large number of different kickers and the thing that struck me is uh first of all it's hard to make kicks above 45 yards so everybody's curve starts to degrade pretty heavily after that but under 45 yards the curves are actually not indistinguishable but they're not that different from each other like, let's imagine you said Justin Tucker is got a 5% higher probability. I think it's high, but let's even say that's true for a kick under 45 yards. So how many of those kicks do you take during the game? Now, by the way, it's endogenous how many kicks you take, given you have Justin Tucker also. But let's ignore that for just a second. Then you have kicks greater than 50 yards. There he might be 10 to 15% better. So is he worth potentially? I'm making this up, and I don't know how to translate this to dollars. Maybe Adi or one of you have looked at this. Is he worth half a point a game? It wouldn't surprise me if yeah. he's worth half a point a game. I mean, you know, I, I this is completely anecdotal, but he literally won games from last year, and I think part of his kind of special quality is not is is not just kind of standing out. I guess you know against the average less than 45 but he's got some ridiculous rate of success above over 50, 50. it's like yeah. he's like i think 70 percent or higher above 50 and again as eric alluded to i mean most kickers degrade to far less than 50 percent by that point point. and yeah, so, so you know let's even say he's 20 percent better but again the challenge of analyzing this again yeah. is the ravens can try 55 yard field goals much more often than the team with the average kicker so you know but let's even say you you fix the number of kicks some other team was going to take, and you put Justin Tucker kicking those kicks. I would wouldn't be wouldn't be surprised if he's worth a half a point a game or something Eric, in that range. It, it, interesting, you know, we talk about expected points, and and we also could talk about win probability. It feels like this might be a space where win probability it makes more sense than expected points in some Maybe. way, right? Because you're talking yep. about half a point player. Go ahead, Odd. Usage. It was a win probability depends on where you're taking those kicks. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we all notice the incredibly um, uh, important high leverage situations where the, the, the field goal making it ends the game. Um, but those are few and far between. And we're, we're not looking at the alternative 
So, it, and you know, it just depends on so much context. And so it's hard to, do we attribute the value to the player when it's the context they're being used? But I, if I just respond to what Eric said about the kick, I think that a guy like Tucker's value is in the above 50 yards because that's where his gap is so different. And Great. think about a, the option. Think about a team that's basically kicking. This is a, a funny place where you're, let's say you're fourth down and you're fourth and five on the uh, on your 40 yard 40, line. Right. Right. Uh, that's like a, that's a punt situation for many teams. And for here's, he's the expected value there between someone who does 70% from 57 yard line, 57 versus 10% from 50 is enormous. That's like a point and a half right there. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, I think Kate's right that something like win probability added would be the right way of attributing kind of his contribution because these kicks are typically like, you know, winning a game or, 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 you know, or, or, or like, you know, are, are, are being done in high leverage situations. I almost think that like, you know, your argument, Adi almost suggests, I think that like, just do, looking at when probably almost, almost underestimates his value because it doesn't account for the fact that like he gives them more situations having Justin Tucker, like there's more situations where they could win the game on their kicker's leg than another team. And it's mm-hmm. not just sort of his performance, given the situation mm-hmm. of them kicking at the end of the game, there's more opportunities for him to win the game because of the kicker he is. I, think yeah. have, I, is such, I, I, I said that in a convoluted way, but I hope yeah. the point kind of got across. Yeah. Well, Rick, I think Rick, you'd Rick, also, sorry, Eric, real quickly on Shane, I just want to underline Shane's point. I think this is something that we miss often in football analytics and sports analytics in general, and that we are going to get a lot better at. And that is how the great players change the situation. Yeah. We're forever conditioning out situation. And asking a guy, how is this guy doing in a situation? But the great ones alter situations more than others. And that's what Shane is saying about Tucker. Eric. No, I was just going to say quickly, just to build on what Shane said, I was saying, I think you'd have to answer this, maybe other ways, but you'd have to almost build some sort of simulator because the choices of what you would do, this was Adi's point also, what you would do at fourth and five at the 40, you would do something different under with Justin yeah. Tucker. Yeah. So, yeah. but. It's fascinating. And yeah, I look, I think they gave him, I don't even remember. I'm thinking maybe it was 16 million, 18 million or something like that. It was 32 million, but with 17 guaranteed, he's worth it. I mean, knowing that you have Justin Tucker back there is, and think about, you know, an overtime game. I mean, it's, yeah, the guy's extraordinarily (laughs) valuable. Okay, what else around the world of football? What else has caught your eye, Eric? You listed a bunch of stuff. What's the well? Uh, so let's just let's maybe quickly go over something that we always talk about this every year, which is the probability of repeating. And I don't even mean repeating as champion. I know the Rams won the Super Bowl, but just to remind everybody, the Rams were the fourth seed last year. So my question is: of the fourteen teams that made the playoffs last year, I'll just remind everybody: in the East, in the AFC, Titans one, Chiefs two, Bills three, Bengals four, Raiders five, Patriots six, Steelers seven. In the NFC, Packers one, Bucks two, Cowboys three, Rams four, Cardinals five, Forty Niners six, Eagles seven. That's fourteen teams. How many of those fourteen teams do you think will make the playoffs this year? Do we know anything about them? I mean, my answer is the just going to be the historical. Is close to like a little bit over 50%. I was right? going to say, no, Shane, we have looked at this in the past. Okay. It's yeah. slightly over 50%, exactly like you said. Yeah. Do you yeah, have yeah. any opinion beyond the, I, might, I just go to the base rate on this. I'm just going to say seven. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I've got opinions about which specific, I, I, I think if I were to sort of go team by team and sort of say like, are they kind of falling? Are they, you know, 
I think it would probably add up to like eight or nine teams, kind of like that base rate would Im- imply. Well, let me basically. put you on binariness, Shane, which I yeah. shouldn't do, but let's do it anyway. Are the Titans going to make the playoffs? They are one of the teams, I think, that misses the playoffs this time, don't, even though they're the one don't, seed. Don't do 14 teams. We're not going to go. No, 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 no. But like uh, examples of teams that I think probably Raiders are could miss. Easily. The Raiders, uh, I honestly... Somebody's going to miss you don't expect to miss. The Bucs could miss. The Bucs could miss. Oh, yeah. One one key injury and the Bucs definitely miss. (laughs) Well, who do you mean? Let me me ask you a question, guys. My memory is that if you look at the impact of last year's one loss record on this year's one loss record, about a third of it goes through. Mm -hmm. And only about a third of it goes through. And so... If you were, if you had that notion of persistence in mind, you might expect there to be more playoff teams turning over than half. So my question to you is, is there greater persistence at the top of the league than through the rest of the league? Is persistent is persistence um, asymmetrically distributed across the the rankings? Does that make sense? I think so. Just because you know, per, I mean, obviously. Persistence at the top is some combination of luck and ability, but you know, the top, there are teams that are consistent, like great, well-run organizations with, you know, kind of franchise players that are certainly consistent. I mean, I would be shocked if the Packers missed the playoffs. Can, I, let, me, let me just unpack something you said. I think when you talked about the one third, I think you're probably referring to the correlation being around 0.3.4 from year to year performance. And that sounds kind of small. But let's think about it. How many teams make the playoffs? It's just under half. Yeah. Is that right? So what's going on is that the very top teams and the very bottom ones, they're so far away from average that even if you only accept one-third of that, you're still in the playoffs. If you shrink basically two-thirds back to back to the mean, when when you're when you're two standard deviations above, you're you're now well above that fifty percent mark. So about half the the teams who are in it are going to make it because they're really good. And the, and the okay. really bottom ones are really bad. So I don't think that the, the one-third is any yeah. different anywhere else. It's just that the really, really good teams are yeah. so much better than the others that even if they lost half their strength or a third or two-thirds of their strength, it's still going to be better than average. That, that's great, and, and it's, a, it's a more parsimonious explanation than persistence. And the thing about persistence, which I believe, is that we have persistence at the bottom also. Oh yeah. yeah, for for some of the I'm same a Jets reasons. Fan. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, not it's not always persistent. I mean, look at the Bengals; they were like you know, like the one number one. You know, Joe Burrow was the number one pick. You know, and so they were at the absolute bottom of the league a couple of years ago, and the Jets you know, have been the number one Super pick Bowl. or number one or number two a whole bunch of years in a row. Oh yeah, or Cle- <laughs> Cleveland as well. I mean, you know, it's, uh, having the number one pick does not, you know, as you sort of said, there is persistence to some teams, and I think it's all, it's all. It, there's a luck component, but there's also some organizations have are persistently well run, and some are. Yeah, not. I know. Well, we see it in college, even you know, even more pervasive with the top, the top being so persistent in recent years. There's some thinking that with NIL, that the top talent will be distributed a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, if Adi and I ever get off our duffs and, and work more on this recruiting paper that we started, we look at the concentration and it, 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 the increasing concentration of talent in the NCAA for a while contributed to this persistence. And now we're probably going to see um, well, the NIL is move back it. in the other. Well, NIL is um, it should it should spread things out. But then on the other hand, the transfers, the unlimited transfers um, are going to are going to move in the other direction we get people um 
um, kind of moving. You see the best properties move to the most valuable places. Uh, but but let's, speaking of all this, so the top 10, the, the coaches poll came out this, this week. How do you all have any reactions to this coaches poll? So just whether you're naive or deep on this, just give me your reaction to the, this top 10. Alabama, it, Ohio yeah. State, Georgia, Clemson, Notre Dame, Michigan, Texas A&M, Utah, Oklahoma, Baylor. I like reaction. the top four teams a lot. Um, I would say at least three or four of those top teams are likely to make the playoffs. And um, if well, I there's had only four, get... there's only four teams in the playoff. You want all four of the top four to make? No, the I said three of the four. Three if I had to four, predict okay. right now, I would say three of the four of those oh are going to make God. the playoffs. That'd be a boring college football season. I think it's going to be a boring college football season. Okay. Okay. Uh, reactions from the other guys. Well, I mean, I guess it's not a very informed reaction, but I kind of feel like, you know, the one thing arguing against that, uh, that, that kind of prediction is I feel like the fifth, sixth sort of teams, I think you aren't, I mean, I don't know enough about Notre Dame and Michigan's off season, so to speak, but I mean, they were right up there last year, you know? And so like, you know, so this is the question. This is the you theme know, of the like, day is regression to the mean. Yeah. And so I, I do. If you expect- gave me three, uh, three out of the top six teams making the playoffs, I'd be pretty confident about that. But cutting off that five and six team to me, I, I, I yeah. Well, so here's, I, I, here's the rationale. I think Shane is that, that Notre Dame and Michigan have not established themselves as being persistent. Right. As no, that's Alabama right. and Ohio state have, and even mm-hmm. Georgia at this point. Um, and so I actually think it may be, especially in the case of Michigan, uh, an example of people too much extrapolations. Like this team did well last year. They're going to do well next year. They lost a lot of talent. Um, Oklahoma has had unbelievable turnover, um, both at the player level and the coaching staff level. It's a little surprising to see them coming in at number nine. Yeah, so do you kind of look at this top 10 list and say it's not regressed enough? Well, this is what I think is interesting about it because there is so much persistence at the very top. It's hard to say that because, Mm -hmm. of course, you're going to go with Oregon, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. But then I think there's too much below that because there's too much just simple extrapolation from last year. Yeah, I think, but I mean, right now, I think you, given how far in front Alabama, OSU, and Georgia were last year over everyone else, even some sort of regression might still put them in the top four teams. That was yeah. my point. Well, and people don't really expect Alabama to regress. In fact, Saban recently said that last year was a rebuilding year, which is really sobering for the rest of the country to hear. I mean, Georgia, I guess, would be the one you might expect. They just came off the national title, but they've just stocked so much talent. But just Everybody, quickly, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Eric. I was going to say, the game that excites me the most, maybe I missed it. I looked at the game one schedule. It's hard to scan 100 games. I did as best I could. Notre Dame at OSU. That game. Yeah, that's that great. A week one game. That's like super that's great. fancy. Super that's great. Fancy. I wish it was in South Bend. It would be, uh, it'd be better to have. I wish it was at Franklin field so we could go. (laughs) Well, Ohio state's supposed to be really loaded as they usually are. Notre Dame is going to be a great story to follow because they've got a new coach and they've got a really popular coach. And it's so popular that some of the guys who had worked for Brian Kelly, when Kelly wanted them to go with him to, to LSU, turned him down to stay there and work with the former defensive coordinator. And it's going to be exciting to see. I mean, I'm, I'm no big Irish fan, but it's kind of an interesting story to see if this guy can take over and take them beyond. Ke- Kelly established him at a very high level, but he couldn't get him over the next level. And maybe the new coaching staff can do that. 
All right, guys, that has been three quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. We have a fourth quarter. We have an interview, speaking of football, Ted Knudsen, both the world concept of football and American concept of football in the next half hour. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. It's so easy to say. Back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow here. Q4, which most of you know has become our interview segment since we've gone virtual in pandemic time. And uh, we're delighted to welcome back a, a somewhat regular guest of ours, someone we've talked to a number of times over the years, Ted Knudsen. Ted is founder of StatsBomb. StatsBomb been pretty serious in the sports analytics space for a few years now. Got one of the first to get real serious, build their own data stream, soup to nuts, sell into all the big soccer clubs, and now has an eye on American football. Very exciting time in the world of StatsBomb. Delighted, Ted, that you would join us and chat with us about that. Yeah, good to see you again, whether it's virtual or in person like in past loans, but it's nice to be here. Well, you know, conferences are coming back around. There'll be some, there'll be some future times happily, um, but it has been a little while. So let me, let's catch up a little bit, Ted. Where are you now? Where are you calling in from? What are you doing? Oh, uh, I'm hanging out with a family holiday in Marin County, uh, California. We decided to, to go to NorCal for a bit, usually based in, in Bath. But then last year, uh, took the kit, the family to uh, Miami um, and started working on American football. So embedded with uh, Manny Diaz's uh, coaching staff there to learn about all the trials and tribulations that they go through. Wow. That is neat. And that's a, a neat way to go about it. Um, let's, let's take stats bomb and your ventures in two parts. Let's start with a little bit of soccer and then we'll transition to what you're doing in college football. And, you know, you dropped yourself into the last year of a coaching regime down there. And I don't know how much you caught of the new, the new regime, which people are super excited about, but we want to hear about that in a moment. But let's start with Premier League because they kicked off this past weekend. My impression is it kicked off this past weekend. And, you know, I saw lots of gnashing of teeth around Liverpool opening with a draw. You know, I feel like Liverpool is always like always all season long trailing Man City. And here they go again from week one trailing Man City. So we want to hear a little bit from you about the state of Premier League, but but let's also then dive into the state of soccer analytics. How did you consume opening weekend? What what jumped out to you? What do you, what are your expectations for the season? I think the thing that's always scary about Liverpool is that Man City have been so good, and I think people kind of lose track of this. Those two teams are awesome, and they're awesome together at the same time, which is like really quite unusual. Um, and so, like City have been so good, but. Both of them have been like on top of points records, like if you exclude the other one in historic Premier League times. Right. Uh, but the problem is like City are consistently so good that there's very little margin for error uh, for Liverpool. And so, you know, last last season might have been the best Liverpool team that they've ever had. And they didn't quite pull off all of the amazing trophies that they, they wanted to. But, you know, you talk to anybody that watched that that team and they're pretty proud of, of what's happened this year. City have what seems like a pretty significant rebuild. You wonder, like, you know, is, is there going to be stability there or not? But, you know, 
Holland is a is a fantastic player that they brought in to to sit up top, and it's it's almost impossible to bet against Pep. Well, that's 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 interesting. What are the betting odds saying about what how this how it's likely to come out this season? I, I don't know, Kate. That's that's your area these days. I I just work on the data side. Ah, uh, that's true. You have to stay away. By the way, Ted is someone who's been kind of on all sides of sports analytics. He's worked inside the books. He's worked inside the teams. He's sold into teams and now he's building his own, has been building his own for a few years now shop. Um, Eric, you want to jump in? Well, I was just going to ask you, Ted, does the, I'll use your words, um, repeating back. Does the Liverpool man city, you called it a low margin of error. Does that impact how a team decides? Do you go for different players? Do you go for a different strategy? Given that, you know, in some sense, you know this, like it would, I would imagine it would be the same as maybe the AL East in baseball. Like, you know, the Yankees are going to spend 200 plus million every year. They may not win the World Series, but they're going to be there. Like recently in basketball, the Golden State Warriors. Now you have in football, some, at least for years, it was the New England Patriots. How are you going to get past this team? So how would, does that, knowing that there's a team of excellence that's pretty much going to be excellent every year, how does that change your thinking? Well, the reality is, <clears throat> if everybody were run equally well, then Manchester United should be the one that, that teams would have to go after. City being very close right there as well in terms of budgetary terms, Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs. But Liverpool are right there, like right among the top sort of three these days, and they've done very well on their, their commercial side. Because of that, they don't need to pursue sort of underdog strategies. They don't need to, to sort of gamble on buy low, high potential guys and then, you know, work their potential to see if they, they come out well. They are good at developing players alongside of that. They also have an academy that they're able to sell players out of and raise funds for that first team as well. Or occasionally, like a Trent Alexander-Arnold, you find one of the best right backs in the world that just happens to be uh, in your academy. So it's it's a little bit different for them. A team like an Arsenal, however, like it seems like they need to, you know, you have to be more careful. You have to keep turning over the the, the squad and, and rebuilding after quite a few mistakes that have been made previously. Or you go all the way down and you hit kind of the, the prototypical team that has done this, or two of them, in fact, in Brighton, to a lesser extent, who beat Man United this weekend. Great coach, Graham Potter. We were on, we, we recommended him for jobs but when he was back in, in Sweden. Or you get Brentford, which is is sort of the, the, the classic money ball story now uh, from small to big, more like the A's as opposed to Liverpool, which feels more like the Boston Red Sox mm-hmm. or you know, maybe the Yankees in what they've done. Mm-hmm. What's an example of something that Brighton and Brentford are doing that put them at the frontier, a little beyond what the others are doing with analytics? Uh, just a, a willingness to buy players from areas that are unfancied and, and might have more risk, but the, the price sort of made those risks attractive. And, you know, if they if they don't work out, then you sell them for a lesser amount and, and churn out that squad and take another gamble. But eventually, if you're good at it, those plus EV bets add up to, you know, real money, right? like they do in the stock market or the gambling market or whatever. So, so let me ask on the, on the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Kate. On the personnel side, then, you know, in, in, in sports, generally, we think about analytics within the personnel shop, and then we think about it in game day decision making. And the big, the biggest edges really do seem to be on personnel, but also there are politics on both sides. What's going on on the in-game decision-making strategy with analytics in soccer these days? I think in a lot of cases, it's still about finding coaches that have the skill sets to play the style of play that is preferred by the sort of analytics groups. And 
I think coach training is probably one of the areas that is so difficult to overcome in almost any sport, but particularly in soccer. And I don't think that most places have really uh, broached that quite well outside of maybe the Red Bull group when Ralph Rangnick was running it. Ted, tell us what the preferred, you said preferred style of play among, I think, analytics. What, what does that mean? What, what is the preferred style of play? I'm, I'm going to allude to it a little bit uh, because I get in trouble from certain uh, people who uh, run baseball teams that now also own soccer teams every time that I, I leak things. So I've got to be a little <laughs> careful about that. Um, but yeah, the, you know, it, it's a bit like the three pointers and dunks uh, in basketball. There are some ways to play that seem to be more advantageous. And so then the next step becomes because you can't just learn to coach from a book, like you can't learn the tactics from a book. Uh, You have to sort of go through it. It's a, it's a very experiential thing. Can you find coaches that have at least some of those aspects that you care about, recruit them to then be able to coach your teams and, and keep doing that as they get poached by better teams or they turn out to be not as good and you have to fire them, which is like a constant state of life for everybody, but the very top, top teams. Well, so one, you're being um, you're being very suspiciously vague there, and I want to know more. So I'm going to have to dig around in the soccer analytics screen and find out what the what the analog to three points and dunks is. But let's stay with coaches for a second. So, one, you said earlier that you wouldn't bet against Pep, the Man City coach, and I'm just curious the how important you think coaching is in soccer. We can think about the role of coaching in the major North American sports. And we could probably kind of rank them where we think it matters the most in soccer to the casual, to super casual fan like me. It just feels like they're hanging coaches like right and left. They're just running them off the plank right and left. It feels dramatic, maybe because they're bigger celebrities or maybe because it matters more in Europe. But there's just there's always this drama around coaches. I can't help but feel like they're overreacting and blaming coaches more than they should be. But I don't know what I'm talking about. What 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 is the state? So it's a U-curve, if you think about it. Like on one side of the U-curve are the very best coaches and they have a massive impact on the uh, the output of their team. And in fact, they might be more valuable than any particular player uh, bar like Lionel Messi. How would you then, know that? I, Just so I know, before you get to the other part of the curve, I'm, not that we disagree with you, we, we believe you, but how would you know that? Because one of the things we do talk about on Moneyball all the time is how do you measure the value of coaching since you only have, you know, it's the classic counterfactual. You can only measure your performance with the current coach, not with the coach you don't have now. So one of the things that we have done historically behind the scenes, you know, I, I worked for uh, an owner that had, you know, a gambling syndicate or, or sort of hedge fund, as you were. And so we do a lot of private research. He had something like 16 quants uh, with PhDs on staff. Uh, I also, you know, have, have been in, in the graduate school space for, for uh, statistics and econometrics. So a lot of applied econometrics on, on my side. So doing the research to kind of figure some of this stuff out. The very best coaches have a huge impact. The very worst coaches have a huge impact, but don't stay very long. So huge selection bias. And then most coaches sort of sit in the middle of that U-curve and, and do not have a huge impact. It's mostly based off of what sort of budget that they have access to and player quality. Mm-hmm. You mentioned coach analytics training. Was that, was that the phrase you used earlier? What, what in the world is coach analytics training? And can, and can we get some of it over here in North America? Well, you have. You've, you've had a lot. Uh, the, the younger coaches are, are certainly much more fired up about learning about how they can learn, uh, win more. Uh, you know, in fact, like you look at the Twitter space and, and Twitter is like so anti-data and coaches are like they don't give a, a, a bleep about this or that. Right. 
But the reality is like these guys really care about what helps them win. And if you give me information that I can digest in a reasonable way, that's quick to generate and insightful, I'm happy to have that no matter where it came from. If it came from video, that's fine. But if it came from data, like awesome, just give it to me in a good format and let's go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned the age of coaches and this, I mean, with any, any scientific revolution, it starts with the younger people. And so it is making uh, slow inroads as coaches age into these positions. Eric. I was going to ask you, Ted, um, performance in soccer, like, are there analytics you guys think about at stats bomb that say, yeah, I know this team didn't perform very well in terms of wins, losses, draws, but actually they performed very well. Like what does the, you know, simple box score, simple analytics don't see that something a more sophisticated data stream or analysis might show. Yeah. So it's a reversion to the mean across, you know, expected goals, performance or possession value performance. Uh, you know, goals are very discrete events. There are on average less than three of them per game in soccer. So you have to go backwards and figure out, all right, how do we find more uh, sort of high uh, sample things that contribute to winning and, and sort of, you know, you allowing few shots from your opponent and creating many shots of good quality is, is a good one. Or like being able to progress the ball into high value spaces on a regular basis and preventing your opponent from doing that is another way of doing that. So you learn to, to model those mathematically. And then you, you know, sort of revert that to, to a mean expectation and say, you know, Hey, this guy, for some reason, they couldn't finish or for other reason, like their goalkeeper was actually terrible and, and gave up 10 goals more this season than we would expect based off of the way that we value that position. So we think that the, the team's actually pretty good or the coach is actually pretty good. Uh, you know, it's just that this thing was a, it was sort of their Achilles heel. I actually love it. We've talked about this many times on Wharton Moneyball, but I've never heard anyone frame it the way you did, which I love, which is you have to take kind of small sample, discrete opportunities and turn it into something more frequent that you can actually measure and actually have to detect something. I think that's a great way of putting it. Ted, uh, it, while you're doing all that, you're learning about the individual players as well. And I'm, and I'm always curious about this challenge, this perpetual challenge in sports and in non-sports organizations about sussing out the individual's contribution to the team outcome and especially individuals who are either overrated or underrated by the more obvious um, events or statistics. Where do you think soccer is in, in being able to partial out because it's such a continuous game. It's the most continuous game of any of the major sports part partialing out the, the behaviors, the actions of individual athletes that make it difference at the team level that might not go noticed um it's further than it was five years ago but i don't think it's as as far as anybody would hope uh in my experience i think soccer and american football are actually pretty close in and kind of where they're at you know they've figured out some of the high leverage moments and they still have difficulty with some things like evaluating quarterback play and how good is a player going to play in the NFL. And, and some of those are because like some of the, um, some of the things, much like you say, soccer is like very continuous. Well, in the NFL, like a simple metric that we've known forever, which is like completion percentage is actually like an eight factor model uh, to break it down. You're like, okay, so it's not just like, it's how far you threw the ball. And it's uh, where you threw the ball versus the sideline. And it's the talent that you have access to on your side of the field and the talent that your opponent has access to and how long you had to throw. And then do you have systemic things that your offensive coordinator is doing to create easier completions for you? Right. Uh, how open were your wide receivers? This is like one factor inside That's of right. a thing that we've used. And you're like, wow, okay, this is much harder than I expected it to be. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, let's let's take that um, as a transition point to your work in football, American football. You you've been working in uh, European sorry, soccer around the world for years now, and you're now entering the American football space. So tell us a little bit about why and what you want to do there, and what how are you from a you know we we do work at a business school. None of us are strategy professors, but we dabble here and there. What is the unique offering of StatsBomb? in the space that's already got some pretty well-established vendors. Yeah, it was, it was a little scary when we, when we took a look at it and, and we took our time making a decision on this. Uh, but effectively it was, you know, can we talk to people inside of the football space and the professional and college space and then figure out like, are there gaps that someone needs to fill? And we're not necessarily going to make the, the NFL's data better because the NGS is, is pretty good and they spend a lot of money on it. But we certainly can make colleges uh, data better, and we can also help marry up data sets based off of a lot of what we've learned in soccer. Uh, recruitment is kind of the unknown frontier, and even above and beyond that, there are certain positions that seem like they're black holes, uh, especially on the lines. And so we decided to spend a lot of time and thought about creating objective data to help evaluate what happens on the offensive or defensive side of the ball uh, based off of feedback that said that, hey, Grading's nice, but it doesn't actually, like, we kind of throw those out because we need to do our own determination of, of what guys are good at or bad at. But we're like, look, we won't grade anybody. We're probably not smart enough to do that. Let's just collect everything that's happening there and mm-hmm. then deliver that up in, in useful ways to the teams. Mm-hmm. You said uh, it's probably easier to add value in that way at the college level than pro because of NGS. Is your focus in col- on college right now? It's on both uh, just because like we're kind of collecting football across the space. One of the things we learned from a couple of the the professional teams is that they're not as excited about the NGS data, uh, even though it's quite good because they don't have the same uh, data set in college. And so as much as they might develop the information on their own team or their opponents, like it doesn't help them be able to predict and project guys. And again, NFL is football inherently is a small sample game. So the more sample that you can build on the same data to be able to understand players and what they do, the better you're going to be able to project those players into the future. So just a clarification, Ted, are you collecting different data than the NGS data or your you're ingesting the NGS data and providing good summaries for teams? We do all of our own data from scratch. We collect all of it off of video, um, ah. usually multi-angle video in this sport. And then we generate the, you know, some of our data with computer vision and some of it is actually generated by humans because the computer vision will fail on you. If you think of lines and line battles, if you think of that from the side, you've got anywhere between, you know, say eight and, and 10, you know, 250 to 300 pound men that run into each other and then overlap every single play. And even from behind, it's sort of like (laughs) their hands are together and they're all mushed up. Like uh, pulling that apart with computer vision is almost impossible. So we collect that as one-to-one engagements or one-to-many engagements. We actually had a four-to-one on a punt or a a prevent defense recently that that (laughs) there was one guy on the line. Um, And and so we collect that and we find out what happens. And and there's there's this classic example that I remember from like Richard Seymour. Like what does Richard Seymour do? Well, he goes in there, he eats up double teams and he doesn't move. Now, from an event perspective, like that's such a weird thing, right? First of all, mm-hmm. you have to know that there's a defensive tackle there and he's being double teamed. Okay, well, we have that information. And then what happens? Well, even when he's double teamed, he just doesn't move, which allows, you know, Teddy Bruschi or whomever else is around him to be able to, to make plays while, while not being affected by the potential combo blocks, et cetera. So this is the type of stuff that we're adding into our data uh, to be able to better evaluate, you know, offensive lineman play, defensive line play, 
And, and we don't know what the end result is going to be in some cases because you design this data, but then until you have lots of it and you've worked with it for years, you don't really figure out the nuances around it. So mm -hmm. we built it. Hopefully everything, everybody comes and, and, and enjoys the data uh, for college and for professional space, but it's very early on. Does someone need to be trained to collect it? Like I, I know football. Like I, I watch football my whole life. I, I'm, but I don't. I've never worked for PFF or StatsBomb or any of those places. Can Can you train me very quickly to, you know, do data coding from visual data? Or is there what What are the skills and expertise needed to do this? So we do collect with people that are kind of football fans, uh, but not people that have a lot of expertise, and certainly not coaches like some of the other data companies do. Uh, partly because of the objective elements, but also partly because we add a lot of technology and proprietary collection software around it to, to enable them to do that. Our collection training is about two weeks uh, on, a, on, a, on a sort of per space, per sport basis. So it's a, it takes a little while to get people up to speed, but it is possible to train anybody to do this. So Ted, am I remembering correctly? This was kind of the initial proposition behind StatsBomb. You guys <laughs> built your data from scratch by training a bunch of folks to watch video and tell you what was happening when nobody else had those, those data. Is that, is that right? So this is well, in, so in soccer, in this soccer, was relatively normal. Uh, they'd been doing it at a company called Prozone years and years ago, actually used to get the VHS tapes and then start to collect some of that information uh, again by okay. what we've done is we, we do a lot more integration of humans and technology in order to create better, more advanced data sets. And yeah. we have about twice as much data in the soccer space on a per game basis than the competitor. I think our new data set in American football is quite heavy and we have about 10 times as much data uh, per oh game as competitors. Okay. Um, let's talk a, just a moment about the technology because computer vision is, it's, I think of it as just a kind of an umbrella term for software that you run on video and it, it, code, it, it quantifies, codes out video into, in various ways. And so is, you don't need to have guys with markers on their uniform or, or wearing sensors. Like we, we kind of started, there's one generation that's hyper technology that does that. This is the other technology. This is the technology that says, we're just going to grab a video feed and run some real good software through there and grab it. And early on, it didn't do as well because you know, it's hard. And my impression is that, well, not my impression. This is the way technology works. It gets better every year, every generation. And it kind of has to be the winner in the long term because it's so much easier to deploy. And do I have that right? And where and how good is it? And how much better is it in 2022 than it was in, say, 2020? Uh, I don't think it's that much better in 2022 than it was in 2020 because it's still a hard problem. And what you find is that even a lot of the super high-tech companies that produce tracking data use humans to clean up that tracking data. And so... Okay. Because it's a hard problem, like if you have single angle or even multi-angle, every time you get an occlusion, which is two players sort of like overlapping each other and coming out the other side, unless you have really clear indicators of who they are, like it's difficult to do. So, you know, the dirty secret a lot of high tech companies have is they use humans to clean up the, the robots. Uh, we combine the two kind of understanding what the problem is to hopefully create better data sets in specific areas that they're stronger or weaker at and then supplement as necessary. Well, I love that philosophically. I mean, there's way too much religious uh, war between technology and humans, and and the the, the best is usually going to be some combination. Eric, could you give us a sense, Ted? Of uh, I think you mentioned 10x data, or maybe in certain sports, 2x data. Can you give us an example of a let's call it whether it's a soccer or American football problem 
that some I'm asking you to sell stats bomb here for a second <laughs> that someone could solve with stats bomb data that they couldn't solve with a more degraded data. So give us an example. Like when you go in to say you should buy our richer data because what, what would be an wow, example? You just teed me up. This is amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying here. That's, that's my job. So in, in soccer, what we did was, you know, there, there are all these uh, attacking players that kind of their, their defensive contributions were unknown to some extent because they would run at other players. You would try and close them down, but you wouldn't end up with a tackle or an interception. You just force them to get rid of the ball faster. So it's a bit like pressures in the NFL, right? A pressure doesn't have to be a sack in order to create a disruptive event in the NFL. This is exactly the same thing that happens in soccer. And so when we started collecting pressures, uh, and, and now you're able to collect degree of pressure. So it's not just a binary, but you, this guy was under a lot of pressure or a little. Um, we were able to start to find players that played this pressing style uh, that, you know, then Liverpool or whomever else would then recruit as, as part of their style of play to be able to do that. Uh, in American football, we think that line, line play especially is, is one of the big areas, but tons of other ones, uh, you know, quarterbacks, uh, if you know where they're being pressed from, does that impact their ability to throw the ball in certain areas of the field? Does it impact some players and not other players uh, where that pressure is coming from? And so does that change how you're going to, to put pressure on that quarterback, where you're going to rush from, what lanes you try and occupy to then disrupt them on their primary uh, pattern set so that they then have to shift the secondary patterns that they might not be as comfortable with? So that's, mm -hmm. that's like a multi-angle thing of recruitment and tactical strategy thing inside of the game. That's part of what makes American football awesome and fun to do, but also makes it really complicated to, to evaluate on a play-by-play on a -play and player-by-player -player basis. Ted, I know that you grew up watching some college football, and so you're a fan, so you knew some things. You weren't coming at this completely naive, but yet you embedded yourself with the University of Miami to really understand what the need was on the market side as you started developing a product. Let's talk a little bit about that. That's one sounds really wise. Um, I'm curious how you found it and, and what's an example of something you learned despite being a sports guy, you go in bed with a team and all of a sudden you see something a little bit different. So you kind of talked, you hinted about kind of the, the almost religious battle among data and, and coach people that, that happens in public, but it's not really how it works. But we, we look at it from a different way as a whole company. Like how do we help people who are in the sport be able to find insight and, and do their jobs better, faster, uh, easier? And so one of the things that I saw when I went into training camp was, you know, these guys who are incredibly overworked in kind of the QC analyst space you know, taking, you know, 45 minute nap under their desk because they, they only got six hours of sleep last night and they've been grinding, you know, for, for weeks now and they're exhausted. And what we do is we build data and software that helps you come to useful conclusions faster uh, throughout the week. So, for example, uh, you know, last year there was a, a player called Charleston Rambo at, at Miami and uh, we were playing University of Virginia and we actually hired UVA's analytics director to become um, our, our head of analytics in American football. And he was telling me that, you know, their coaches didn't find out that Rambo was almost exclusively right-sided until like Wednesday, uh, Wednesday morning. And at that point, it was a little more difficult to add in game plan wrinkles to the defensive side of the ball to be able to counter that. But he was almost their only receiver that could get open on a regular basis. So he was their bailout guy. There was a flip side of one where I was in a meeting and, and Manny said, hey, I'd love to see that dude's route tree in 11 personnel on third and long. And I was like, man, if we get the software right, that's like three clicks that they're able to do inside of a, a team meeting. And they're able to do this all the time 
to be able to just bring up useful information that otherwise they'd have to go back and grind the video or try and figure that out uh, you know, from somebody else's data set. We can make this like we have in soccer, really easy to use. And then they're just gonna live on this platform. So that's what, mm -hmm. that's what we decided to do. By the way, in that, just to give us a better sense of how hard it is for these teams to prep, just in that example, how many different, what did that route tree look like? And just as the example you said, so a receiver for a team that Miami was playing, right. coach, coach wanted 11 formation, third and long, a particular guy's route tree. How determined is his route tree by that situation? In other words, how much of an advantage is it to know? Or is that route tree still pretty complicated so it's not that advantageous to know it? So this guy in particular, I think, you know, had a fairly common set of routes, like you're looking at maybe two or three. Uh, uh, but in fact, like that was early season. And, you know, they, I think they added a, a set of wrinkles, uh, you know, as they went through the year. You'll also see UVA, uh, you know, as, as we've shown in some of our, our online stuff, they use the middle of the field a lot more than some teams. Uh, and so like that either is more or less complicated based off of how you normally have your coverage set up to be able to, to defend those areas. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the answer is it's super technically uh, dependent on what you're facing. And sometimes it changes on a week to week basis in ways that you didn't expect. And that's really frustrating. <laughs> right. And so these guys have to, they, they, they want to learn tendencies, but then they have to stay open to the possibility that they're going to break the tendencies. And one of the things you're saying is the earlier in game week that they know that the easier it is to build them into their game plans. That's right. And to give a second option to, you know, be able to do that. So like, you know, sometimes you have a single plan, but maybe if that one's not working, then you have a backup plan that you're able to install. But if the later in the week that that comes, you can't install anything. Right. Right. So how did you, um, how'd you end up with Miami? How'd you choose Manny Diaz or how did he choose you? Uh, so I had a couple of options and I was very happy to, um, to be able to, you know, after the pandemic, to be able to go explore, uh, the rest of the world and uh, not being locked down in the UK. And honestly, who wouldn't want to go to Miami if you had an option, but Manny's, <laughs> Manny's group were unbelievably, uh, kind and thoughtful and open about the, you know, what they were doing. They taught us so much. Uh, it okay. was, it was more than we could have asked for, but the reality is we've, we've since interacted with a number of college programs who are, are also seem to be that way. And they're becoming partners with us, which is, you know, it's great for us. That's great. Well, Diaz was always known as being uh, analytically oriented or it came kind of came from that world. And so I guess it's not too surprising. Um, last question, how, you're dabbling in college sports. We know less. It's so distributed. Um, we know less about the state of sports analytics in college football versus professional football. How would you characterize it? I think that that actually is the other sort of big impetus for StatsBomb. Um, we've democratized some access to women's football data uh, because it's the right thing to do. And they didn't have as much money. Uh, but what we see in the United States is that, you know, the big leagues have a lot of money and they seem to have some very high analytical penetration. In college, like it has not gone down that that tree very much. And so if we make good software and good tools for them to be able to do that, like we think that it's going to go everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. Not just to FBS, not just to Power Five, but all throughout the FBS and possibly down in FCS, and maybe in three to five years' time down in the high school space. Uh, because I, I think everybody that does coaching is super passionate and just wants more, better information. If you give them the tools that it's like clicking on your iPad or something to be able to do that, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, super interesting. It's going to be fun to see it happen over time. Ted, um, we wish you the best with it. Um, and with your traditional work in soccer as that season gets going. And thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thank you so much. Always good to be here. 
Absolutely. Ted Knudsen, he's a great follower, by the way, on Twitter. I believe his handle's at Mixed Nuts, Nuts with a K, like his last name, at Mixed Nuts. Great follow. And he is the founder of StatsBomb, longtime kind of pioneer in soccer analytics, now making his, uh, his way into American football. That has been two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball for the whole crew. Eric Bradle has been with me through the whole thing. This has been Cade Massey for Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner, who have been some in and some out. They'll be back around in the future for Matty Dats, the boss man, for Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.